As Luke said, uh, we're uh, supported missionaries here with uh, Wycliffe Bible Translators. Uh, my wife and I, we live in uh, Langley, British Columbia, and our training school, Canada Institute of Linguistics, it's a Wycliffe training school, and it's on the campus of uh, Trinity Western University. So uh, it was great to be here at Christmas. Kim uh, actually got a chance to be here too and uh, to, to participate in the Christmas Eve service, and, and that was just a wonderful time of being back home here in Edmonton. So thank you for continuing to pray for us and support us. Uh, like the Super Bowl, uh, I'm going to actually put a few Wycliffe ads throughout my message, so um, you'll see those. Uh, I'll talk a little bit more about uh, what's going on in, in that world. So, Well, you've been doing this, um, this series on stewardship, asking the question, what's in your hand and what can we steward for God's kingdom? Are our hands open to his purposes or are they tightly clasped? Earlier, we read uh, from John 6, the feeding of the 5,000. And the God-man, Jesus, he looks at the crowd of 5,000, and he's filled with compassion. And he asks, what's in your hand that you can contribute? He invites us to a response. He actually wants to grow us in actually asking that question. He's knowing full well what he's up to, and he's kind of playfully conniving with Philip. He says, hmm... I wonder where we shall buy bread for all these people. And the scriptures actually say he knew right from the beginning what he was up to. Philip says, are you kidding? It would take two months wages just to provide a little morsel of bread to all these people. Philip's initial test grade on this is a failure. It's a big fat F. Andrew doesn't do any better. He finds a boy willing to share, but Andrew too says, the crowd's too big. The fish and loaves, these are tiny. They're puny. And what about the boy? I sometimes wonder if that boy was initially reluctant. Maybe he was a little mad at Andrew. What are you, what are you saying calling my fish and loaves puny? Maybe he didn't trust Andrew and the disciples, and he, he accompanied them as they went to the master with his fish and loaves, making sure that they wouldn't swallow them on the way as Jesus was about to do something with them. When they reached the master, Jesus had a big smile on his face, maybe with a nod that playfully communicated to the boy, you've shared your fish and loaves. You've taken what's in your hand and you've shared that. Now watch this. These big guys, these disciples of mine, were about to teach them a lesson. Can you imagine the excitement of the boy as he clues in to what Christ is about to do? Those are my fish. That's my bread. He's going to do something amazing with them. That childlikeness, that childlike faith. Some of you know we've recently had tons of snow in Langley. It's hung around for weeks. I love it. I've been running around in the snow like nobody's business. I love shoveling. Of course, I don't have to do it months on end like here, but I love it. And one day I was out shoveling and I started lobbing snowballs at one of the kids uh, who was out shoveling as well. And he starts lobbing them back. Pretty soon, all the kids on our street are out in their snowsuits, ganging up on me. I'm pleading for help from other parents that are out and about, and they start making snowballs, but they're stockpiling them for their kids. (laughs) One six-year-old comes right up to me, two feet away, and pelts me with a snowball. I feign pain and shame, and I roll across the car. Oh, you got me, you got me. And I ask him, oh, really? You're asking for it, aren't you? And he gleefully says, we're all 
asking for it. I pelt him back with a snowball. They're all so happy, all these kids. And over and over again, we're just pelting one another. Happy. Well, except for the three-year-old, I accidentally face washed with a nice big loose snowball. He cried. Jesus says to the boy with the fish and the loaves, you're asking for it, aren't you? And the boy gleefully says, yes, we're all asking for it, all 5,000 plus of us. Do it, do it, do it. Do something with these loaves and fish. He puts the fish, Jesus puts the fish and loaves in a basket and pulls them out. Puts them in a basket, hands them off to Philip. Philip's looking a little bit incredulously. How, how is this basket full now? And Jesus is looking at him saying, do you see what I'm doing with what this boy has offered? He takes another basket, fills it up, passes it off to Andrew, and off they go, feeding that whole crowd of 5,000 men. That's not including women and children. The kid is elated. He's still asking for it. He's saying to Jesus, do it again, do it again. Basketfuls later, and after everyone had their fill, note what the scriptures say. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. The kid is smug as a bug. Does it say that they collected pieces of bread? No, it says they collected the pieces of the five barley loaves, what he offered with open hands to Christ. And notice it doesn't say small loaves and fishes anymore. It says loaves and fishes. And the kid looks at Andrew and says, puny loaves and fishes, eh? Look what happened. The kid asked for it, and he asked for it on behalf of all 5,000 plus, with all that he had to offer. And it was all a part of what Jesus had intended from his first statement to Philip. Hmm, where are we going to find enough bread and food to feed all of these people? Skip to the, uh, the end of the book of Matthew. Christ comes to all the disciples and those that would follow. That's you and me. And he comes to us just like he did to Philip. And instead of the 5,000, Jesus is looking out over all the world, starting with that local community, and then the nation, and then the nations, the 7,000 languages, the more than 14,000 tribes in the world. And with intention to test us, to grow us, to make us more like him, he says, hmm, how are we going to feed the bread of life to all of these people? From another account of the feeding of the 5,000, he says to the disciples, you, you feed them. And in the Great Commission, he says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I'm with you to the very end of the age. As Jesus invites us to make disciples, what's in our hand? We have a number of loaves and fishes in our hands. The word of God and what it communicates about the story of salvation from the very beginning of time. There's our own story of salvation, our personal experience. We can steward the gospel. Now, I don't know about you, but sometimes when I think about sharing the gospel locally with my, with my friends that might not know Christ yet, 
um, things come up within me. So I'm going to ask my brother Randy to come up at this point, and we'll we'll portray a little bit about that. This is such great news. I can't believe how much my life has changed. I, I just got to tell somebody. I, I know, I'll tell my friend over there, Randy. He'll, he'll, he'll get so much out of this great news. But I, I don't... But what if he thinks I'm being too, too pushy? What if I seem offensive to him? You know, Larry, uh, you seem a little pushy. I mean, pushy. Or what if he thinks I'm, I'm judging him or somehow that I think, he thinks that I think I'm better than him? Oh, so you think you're Mr. I got it all together. What are you, the, you think you're firstborn, aren't you? <laughs> yeah. Let me guess, you're preaching on <sighs> Sunday. What if he thinks I'm one of those fanatics? I don't want to be lumped in with those fanatics. What if I make his impressions even worse? You're not becoming one of those fanatics, are you? I mean, all these fanatics are the same. Radical, fanatical. Worst of all, what if what if what I say offends him so much he doesn't want to be my friend anymore? What if he rejects me? Uh, you know, Larry, I've been thinking um, maybe we should stop hanging out because um, you're kind of, how do you say, uh, a loser. <laughs> Okay, I don't care. I, I, I'm just going to put those fears away. I, I just got to tell him this news. It's, it's just, I know it's going to change his life. Randy. Yeah. Have you seen this new phone? The phone? It's changed my life. Wow. It's unreal. Yeah, look what you can do with the, the calendar. You're still using this old technology. You should try this. It will change your life. Okay. But can you do this? Uh, no, I'm not going to try Here, let me show you more about okay. this. Okay. Okay. So, of course, when we share news like that about a phone or the latest diet that's changed our life, latest exercise program, all those kinds of things, we don't worry about offending others, right? We don't get into that place of fear. And uh, sometimes I wonder, what, what is it that holds us back from sharing the gospel, from stewarding the gospel with open hands? We have so much to offer with the loaves and fishes that come directly from Christ himself in our life. What's in our hands? We have the word of God. We know what we've been saved from. We know what Jesus did to save us. And we have our own personal testimony, our own personal experience of living in Christ. Part of what I want to do this morning is just go through these things uh, from the beginning and see that the benefit of the gospel, if we, if we focus on it and, and meditate on it and see it on a day-to-day basis, sharing it is something that we want to do, not something we have to do, it's something that we get to do and uh, <clears throat> to, change, to change the world, to change the lives of others, to change the life of ourselves. Uh, here's uh, one of my Wycliffe ad spots. So 
How many of you have been directly impacted by the ministry of Bible translation? It's a trick question. Everyone has should go up, right? Because the Bible, the original source documents are in Greek and Hebrew. And we all get to read that in English. And uh, people actually were, were burned at the stake for the initial English uh, translations of the Bible. And yet we have the benefit now of uh, generations of English uh, Bible translation. We have easy access to the translated word of God. Everything I'm about to share today comes out of our, our experience with the message that's in God's word. We share the gospel, and the gospel is in the Bible, the very history and the story of the good news of Christ. All weekend in our Wycliffe booth, <clears throat> I've been grabbing people as they walk by, and challenging people <clears throat> to consider the access they already have to the good news of Christ in their own language. And we have this, I forgot to bring it, we have this display. And I say, how many languages do you think are in the world that still don't have access to God's word? And because uh, Missions Fest has these rules that you can't have displays out too far, I, I keep it down and then I just pull this up, pull it up, pull it up, pull it up. And there's 1,700 languages listed on this poster. Still 1,700 languages in the world that do not have access to the good news about Jesus in their heart language. When our lives take unpredictable turns and get tough, really tough, the word of God speaks to our hearts. I've had the privilege of being trained and uh, Sunday schooled, going to college and careers, high school groups here, and in each of those venues, learning about the word of God, learning about the good news. But a lot of that is head knowledge. But when God brings experiences into our life, that head knowledge moves to our heart. And it's so important what's happening here at West Meadows. I loved what I saw last week, right? Those kids singing the books of the Bible and becoming familiar with that whole story of redemption. And that, that story is going to affect their lives when it matters every day and when they're in the midst of trial. <clears throat> The Word of God is in over 100 translations in English. I want to thank you for partnering with Kim and I. This is my office, and uh, right behind my computer, I put all the prayer cards of students that have graduated and gone on to uh, serve around the world. So all those prayer cards there are alumni serving. And it's an immense privilege. I, I get to learn so much from them. I hear from uh, a number of them every week. Um, and... Uh, it's amazing what they're doing. Some of them are in the very, very sensitive areas of the world, uh, being incredibly courageous and uh, <clears throat> getting the Bible translated into those languages. And you too have a part in that. Those alumni, they're your alumni as well, right? You are a part of stewarding God's word around the world. Okay, what have we been saved from? What is the basis of the gospel? Why, I think this is maybe one of the hardest parts for us nowadays, especially, is we see people around us and we go, does the gospel actually have anything to offer them, right? Maybe they're, you, you think that they're doing okay without the gospel, and, um, <clears throat> but we, we come to the Bible and we learn about our basic condition. At 
right in the book of Genesis, God says, you must not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. Death is proclaimed. Satan succeeds in duping Adam and Eve, and death becomes the fundamental driving principle of all human existence. Death is more than just physical death. Adam and Eve lived for hundreds of years after this moment. There are other aspects to this death. Notice what happens after they've sinned, what the consequences are. What are the consequences of death itself? Well, what's the very first thing Adam and Eve do? Then the eyes of both of them were open. They realized they were naked, so they made coverings for themselves. And when God confronts them, Adam says, I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. There's this fear of punishment, a fear of being known, being caught. All of a sudden, we realize that we're in this broken relationship with God. There's fear and there's hiding, and there should be. We're in broken relationship with the God of the universe. But immediately we become experts at covering ourselves up, at hiding. We've had thousands of years of practice, and we're only getting better at it. Oops, sorry. Part of uh, death <clears throat> is the physical death, but there are also these other things that are associated with that. The fear of insignificance. We have the fear of death, the fear of insignificance, the fear of insecurity, and the fear of rejection. God says, by toil we will now exist to find our food. Our security is threatened. We fear isolation, separation, and rejection. Because of looming death, we exist in fear of death. Our whole lives, apart from Christ, revolve around death. But... The interesting thing is we don't realize it because we've become such experts at hiding from it. We put fig leaf upon fig leaf. That covering's not enough, so we run and go behind bushes. We hide so well, we medicate our fear so well, that we become unaware of the fear itself, unaware of the broken relationship we have with God. I often ask myself, what are the fig leaves that I'm exercising, putting on these days, and how does God want to enter into my life to remove those, to set me free from those. What are the the fig leaves that you put on? How do you find your significance? How do you avoid rejection? I'd like to share a part of my personal journey in this. Uh, Some of you have heard this story before, but it's something that God used to, to show me uh, how his love really, uh, what he did on the cross, affects every moment of my life. So I met Kim in uh, 1986 at our Wycliffe Training School in Oregon, very similar to the Canada Institute of Linguistics. And uh, as some of you know, Kim's about uh, half an inch taller than I am. And we were in this crowded registration room and uh, on the very first day, and our eyes met across everybody else's heads, right? We were destined for each other. <clears throat> Uh, we'd get married four years later, and then uh, Anna came into our life, and um, <clears throat> she's got the height of my Japanese grandma. And then Matthew um, has uh, inherited the height of Kim's dad, and uh, he's he's seven one now. So, um, <clears throat> we uh, 
we were poster kids, Kim and I, for training schools at SIL. There was this poster that came out, and there's Kim and I. Uh, this is a photo that Mike Chesworth took, actually, years and years ago. And uh, <clears throat> notice what it says at the bottom of this poster. Are you ready to do something significant with your life? Are you ready to attempt great things that can make an ultimate difference? Are you ready to improve your mind for God? Then come to SIL, this training school. I was ready to do all those things. And so we did that, and off we went to Cameroon to serve in the Ministry of Bible Translation. And it was the beginning of a dream come true. I absolutely loved working in Cameroon. But Anna was having health issues, and I didn't realize it at the time, but we were also having issues as a family. So after about a year, we ended up coming back. I was incredibly disillusioned, having spent all that time training, getting ready, and I was inexplicably angry when I got home. I was treating Kim, and Matthew had come along by then too, uh, both, everyone with contempt and anger. And this went on for a number of years until about 2003 when our marriage just completely unraveled, and we sat on the brink of divorce for more than a couple of years. But God was using that time. Unfortunately, so much of my motivation, unbeknownst to me, was coming from fear. Fear of insignificance. The poster slogan, do something significant with your life, became... Be significant. Attempt great things was be great. And be loved for what you do. Justify your existence. Don't be rejected. Well, when we had to come home because my significance was at stake, I reacted. When our fig leaves start to get pulled off, when they don't work anymore, we immediately react. We try and put more on. And in this case, I was blaming. Blame is another fig leaf blaming Kim and my kids. We try to slap on new ones, but even those could not remain. God would not allow it. My blame, my goodness, my smartness, my faith heroics were gone. All that was left was raw fear. I had never seen it before. And I was so afraid. So afraid of rejection by Kim, by my kids. So afraid of being insignificant. So afraid of tomorrow. I did not know if we'd be together or not the day after. It was me, my fear, and God. And I distinctly remember crying out to God, You know everything. You know what today and tomorrow will look like. You have no idea what it's like to be afraid of tomorrow. Everything's in your control. You can't possibly know my fear. I was wrong. I heard a voice nudging me to enter the Garden of Gethsemane, and I saw something there I had never seen before. Did you know that from the beginning of eternity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have been in perfect union? Perfect unity. The fabric of the universe, all of creation, is created out of this unity. And in the garden, Jesus is about to head to the cross, to death on a cross, and all of death's ramifications. Insignificance, insecurity, and rejection by the Father as he takes on our sin. Something that has never been experienced since the eternal beginning of the universe. An unknown experience for Christ. An unknown tomorrow. 
And it terrifies Jesus. We see that in the passage of Gethsemane. Father, if it's possible, take this cup from me. Let there be another way. Father, let there be another way. To be so rejected that he would cry out on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In the garden, Jesus as one of us, as a human being, grapples with fear of death. We deal with fear because we're in a broken relationship with God. Jesus is confronted with fear because he's about to submit himself to a broken relationship with the Father. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. The brutal honesty in his pleading with the Father. He agonizes. He slaps no fig leaves on those on those feelings of fear. Instead, he shows us the way through fear. This is history's most decisive moment when Jesus pushes through fear in order to be rejected by the Father. Everywhere else, Jesus speaks of his unity with the Father. But here, more clearly than anywhere else, he says, not my will, but yours. We see the individual individuality of Christ and what he's about to go through. And here's probably my favorite verse in the Bible. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Jesus came to free those who all their lives were held in slavery by fear of death, fear of rejection, fear of insignificance, fear of loneliness, isolation, and separation. Death has been put to death, and that being the case, we are no longer slaves to it. Jesus faced the fear but did not sin. He didn't run. He did not cover over it. He submits to the Father's will. He's truly our high priest He knows my fear. He knows the fundamental experience started by Adam, but he did not hide. I love this uh, image of baptism that we just got to experience today. There's two kinds of baptism in the New Testament. The baptism of repentance that John the Baptist and his disciples were doing, and then the baptism of salvation. When Jesus is baptized by John, it's not a baptism of repentance because Jesus was sinless. It's a foreshadowing that Jesus is going to die to death. And baptism is a beautiful picture of this death. I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. When we dip them, sometimes I want to see us hold people down there, That right? We die to death, right? Once we're dead, death no longer has reign over us. We want to feel the effects of being buried. We're dying to fear of death. And then we bring them up in resurrection because of what Christ did for us on the cross. We die to insignificance, insecurity, separation. And then we rise with with Jesus in new life, new birth. We clap because the power of death and the fear that was wielded by Satan now no longer has power. Death has been put to death. One of the uh, 
the interesting things for me is how do I recognize my fear for what it is? I'm so, uh, so good at hiding from it, such an expert with it. Um, how, do, how do I see it for what it is? And it all comes down to Scripture, the Word of God. One of its functions is to reveal death to us. It says that in Romans, that we would go along our merry way, but Christ, act, you know, uh, in sin, in fear of death, but uh, the, the Word convicts us and shows us that things aren't aligned with righteousness, with God. Uh, <clears throat> my uh, brother once asked me, uh, what's the opposite of love? And uh, I sat there thinking and thinking, and hate? No, not hate. I sat there thinking and said, I don't know, I don't know, tell me. And he said, it's fear. Perfect love casts out fear. The opposite of love is fear. And what are the expressions of fear in our lives? If we take uh, 1 Corinthians and turn it on its opposite, this is where I become a little more aware of when fear is at work. And those are actually invitations from God himself to enter into the perfect love, the work that he did on the cross, <clears throat> to solve this, uh, this conundrum. Fear is impatient. Fear is unkind. Fear envies, has a constant need to boast, and is proud. Fear is rude and self-seeking. It's easily angered. Fear forever keeps a record of wrongs. Fear finds hidden pleasure in being right and taking vengeance. Fear resists peace and truth. Fear gossips, digs, and attacks. It's paranoid and distrustful. Fear is caught in an unending spiral without hope. Fear abandons others and isolates. And fear always fails. When I feel myself being unkind, when I'm, anger, when I'm angry, <clears throat> nine times out of ten, if I stop and ask God what's going on and take a deep breath and a step back, it's fear at work. Sometimes, you know, we have righteous anger, but I find in my life anyways, it's very, very rare. <clears throat> One of the temptations I find is <clears throat> when I'm feeling these things, I, I say to myself, well, I should be patient. I should be kind. Um, I shouldn't be envious. And uh, <clears throat> again, uh, a friend told me once, you know, that just sounds so frantic. You know, I should, I should, I should, I should be this, I should be that. Stop living the shoddy life, he said, right? And what's the alternative? Well, the alternative is actually to rest in what Christ did on the cross. Moments of angst, when we feel these, these feelings where our lives are not in alignment with the scriptures, are actually opportunities to go to what Jesus did in the Garden of Gethsemane and what he followed through on at the cross. Is my significance at stake? Is, am I worried about rejection? Am I worried about material security? Did you know that because of what Christ did, our significance is something that we no longer have to frantically grasp for. God bestows your significance upon you. And there's nothing anyone, including you, can do about it. 
God bestows your security. God loves you. And there's nothing you can do about it. Because the power of death has been broken by what Christ did on the cross for us. It's for freedom that Christ has set us free. Kim and I are celebrating 27 years of marriage this year. God allowed these things to unravel. And for me, in many ways, our relationship for all, many of those years was based on fear. Covered in layers and layers and layers of fig leaves in both of us. It, it looked like this. I was smothering Kim with my anger. And he had to break that apart, teach us to learn to stand in the significance and the security that he bestows upon us so that we can come back together like this. Every day, knowing that Jesus knows my fear makes all the difference in the world and that he pressed through it on our behalf. Back to our skit that Randy and I did. Do you believe that the good news of Christ is better than the good news of gizmos and entertainment? God is offering us freedom. I found this beautiful quote from uh, Joseph Ratzinger. Are we not perhaps all afraid in some way? If we let Christ enter fully into our lives, if we open ourselves totally to him, are we not afraid that he might take something away from us? No! If we let Christ into our lives, we lose nothing, nothing, absolutely nothing of what makes life free, beautiful, and great. No, only in this friendship do we experience beauty and liberation, liberation from fear and death. When we give ourselves to him, we receive a hundredfold in return. Yes, open, open wide the doors to Christ, and you will find true life. What's in our hands? We have the word of God, this precious good news of salvation, what Christ did for us in saving what he saved us from and our personal experience of Christ in our lives. These are amazingly precious loaves and fishes. We can come to the Lord like that boy with childlike faith and be amazed at how he's about to take those fish and loaves and help others get to know him as <clears throat> he multiplies the effects of his love and gospel in our own lives. Do it again, Lord. Do it again. Christ is looking at the multitudes here in Edmonton and around the world. And with intention to grow us, to make us more like him, to take us deeper and deeper into love and freedom, he says to us, hmm. How are we going to feed the bread of life to all these people? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for all your love for each one of us. <clears throat> and uh, that this is what uh, each one of us has to offer to our neighbors, to our city, to, to our nation, to the world. And I pray that you would give us courage. Show us on a day-to-day -day basis that the benefits of what we see around us are so infinitesimally small compared to your eternal love and the, the infiniteness of that. In Jesus' name, amen.